0: Since Boris Johnson commenced his eventful, error-prone, impropriety-plagued ascent through the United Kingdom's media and politics some 35 years ago, the phrase, surely this is the end for Boris Johnson, has been a recurrent motif of British public life. This week, at the umpty billionth time of asking, the answer appeared to be yes. On Tuesday, Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak and Health Secretary Sajid Javid simultaneously resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet. A frantic, elbows zakimbo stampede for the exits ensued as dozens of Conservative MPs, some of whom anybody had heard of, suddenly discovered that Johnson's manifold and altogether unconcealed shortcomings were an insupportable burden upon their consciences. By Thursday morning, even a creature armoured by Johnson's impenetrable carapace of shamelessness understood that the jig was up. Boris Johnson's premiership will end, as a Boris Johnson premiership was always likely to, and certainly as it always deserved to, with one wretched, ridiculous, undignified and avoidable scandal too many. In this case, his indulgence of the predatory behaviour of a colleague, the incredibly named MP, Chris Pincher. But why was this the straw which finally overwhelmed a hitherto remarkably steadfast camel? Who or what might succeed Boris Johnson? And is there something Boris Johnson might be remembered for without an anguished wince? This is The Foreign Desk. We suspend Chris Pincher. The Prime Minister's judgement in appointing Chris Pincher to the government to oversee the discipline and welfare of MPs has been questioned. And since MPs reported seeing him drunkenly grope two men last week, some 14 more allegations spanning a decade have surfaced.
1: Last week, the Prime Minister said that he knew nothing of specific allegations about misconduct by the member for Tamworth. Then he claimed he had only been aware of reports and speculation. But, Mr Speaker, the truth is out today. I think Rishi Sunak has just... Resigned.
2: We have had a stream of resignations, over 50, 54, 55 resignations or more.
1: Breaking news Boris Johnson
0: has sacked Michael Gabe. Now, how much consideration are you giving to the prospect of your resignation? Uh, I'm getting on with the job that I was
3: elected to do.
0: It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new. Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. You're listening to a special live edition of The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will be hearing from one not altogether displeased Conservative MP, a former 10 Downing Street Director of Communications, and from the country which will be sorry uh, to see Boris Johnson go. But first of all, for the latest on a bizarre week in British politics, even by the recent standards of bizarreness established by British politics, I'm joined by Monocle24's Westminster Watcher, Vincent McAvenny. Um... Vincent, first of all, there is one question we do need to address here, which is:
1: Is Boris Johnson actually going to go? Well, I sat with you at this microphone on Monday, and it seems like a lifetime ago now, given was that all only that we—that was only Monday—that we had this chat about <laughs> Boris Johnson, truth, the Chris French affair, and listening to that entry VT there. I mean, what a lot! It's a lot that's happened. Um, without putting on the tinfoil hats and and going down its a psyop kind of route. I think that there is a genuine concern outlined and expressed by a number of Conservative MPs and Sir John Major, the former Prime Minister, Mm. in that very public letter, that Boris Johnson's track record shows that he is someone who likes to bend, break, stretch rules, however you want to describe it, as much as possible, to do what he wants. And we know he wanted to be Prime Minister more than anything. uh, And it was his vaulting ambition all of his life. And I think the red flag for a lot of people, even after more than 50 members of his government had resigned, was that resignation speech, because it was very strange. And it didn't apologize for or even acknowledge any of the reasons it was weirdly
0: upbeat weirdly
1: upbeat uh you know he didn't he there was more spreading of the blame it felt in a way you know he said the the sort of it's darwinian and the pack has turned against me and what he did to the public was basically say my party's a pack of rabid animals uh, and they've ditched this man that you put in power with this huge mandate which he talked about all week long in Mm. 2019 so i think There's a genuine concern that the, as David Cameron called him, the slippery greased piglet (laughs) was going to find a way of slipping out of this resignation and staying in place. And of course, you know, at a time of war in Europe and economic crisis, uh, Boris Johnson more than anyone knows that events can lead to unusual circumstances where things you wouldn't imagine happening happen. Um, So I think deep down Boris Johnson probably would love to stay and the fact he wanted a timetable to go all the way to October to turn the party conference into some kind of swan song, greatest hits, here's what you're missing out on, you know, it's a bit like the Elton John farewell tour, it could just go on and on and on and on unless you get him out quickly. Uh, Johnson on and on and on and on on indeed. Um,
0: Does the party have the option and are they likely to exercise it of removing him before he wants to go?
1: Yes, they can. And I think... All of the contenders will want as short a race as possible. I think we'll have a new Prime Minister in place in this country by the first week of September. Because by about the end of the month, you've got the Conservative Party conference. And that needs... You need a window to get in, get your foot under the desk and relaunch your party roughly, and yourself as the leader, roughly 20 months before you need to have a general election. Mm. So the idea that this is going to go on to October, no way, none of the candidates will want that. There'll be, you know, I thought there'd be initially 10 candidates. I think there might, you know, you, when you've got names this morning, like Kemi Badenoch, who's a former equalities minister, very much low profile, throwing her hat in the ring with a big interview in The Times. I think we're going to have a really broad field in the first round of this that is going to very quickly be narrowed down into one or two key contenders, and... Uh, and will be done and dusted by the end of August. Well, let's talk about who those key contenders might end up being. As, as you correctly point
0: out, it is at the moment a... Yeah, a a sort of bizarre uh, all-in brawl, as everybody thinks that this is maybe one of those mad moments when anybody's got a chance. But is there at least consensus, do you think, among the Conservative Party, and this will, of course, ultimately be a choice made by the Tory party's members, about, if not necessarily who they're looking for in their next leader, then what? Do they they want continuity, Boris Johnson, or... or Might there be a recognition that this might be one of those, you know,
1: Thatcher to major moments where you pick somebody who's just just going to calm everybody down a bit? I think it's more of an existential moment than that. I think that, you know, we have had in the past two appointments to prime minister. It's been about doing one job delivering mm. Brexit, the will of the people as the Conservative Party sees it. The most appropriate moment is the 2005 moment between David Davis and David Cameron. Mm. It is the Tory party deciding not who can do this job and carry on. It is a full reset. You've been in power for 12 years. You've got Keir Starmer who has climbed up, despite his uh, you know problems that he has had, climbed up the opinion polls in recent months. Um, and you have to pick someone you know, if you're saying that Brexit is done and we got Brexit done, well, what what's next? Because the game has already changed. You've got a cost of living crisis. You've got war in Europe. Who is the person that can shepherd, you know, a pretty battered economy at this point through a decade where it looks like there's going to be really rapid change around the world? And I think that is why there's so many candidates running is because the field is open. And it really is a moment now, a Tory party, which for 30 years was divided on the issue of Europe. Well, if they say, as they do, that Europe is now sorted, and it's just about sorting out the the sort of detail around the Northern Ireland protocol, then it's about the direction of travel they want to take this country. Do they want to go down a low taxation, low regulation, Singapore style route? Or are they going to tack more closely to Europe because they're already starting to see behind the scenes that when it comes to economic recovery, Britain's is pretty hampered when it comes to the top economies in the world because the real impacts of Brexit are also being felt simultaneously. Just find this, the Foreign Desk. You mentioned Europe. Is it possible
0: to assess basically how loud the sigh of relief uh, from
1: the rest of Europe has been at Boris Johnson's departure? I think there was a sigh because I think many credit you know, Boris Johnson's decision in 2016. It's well known that he wrote two letters decided to pick the one that said uh, Brexit at the top of it uh, and publish that one. Many people think it was simply as a way of trying to get himself fast-tracked into the Prime Ministership uh, to get rid of David Cameron, his sort of old uh, rival. I think, yes, they will be a sigh of relief that, that Boris Johnson has gone because they know that he's such a charismatic figure uh, in some ways that he tries to bluster through. And in a lot of ways, he blustered through the Brexit mm. ordeal, you know, telling people not to worry, it's oven ready, all of that. So there will be a sigh of relief that that's gone, but also there is a you know we're getting we're going to get two pots of people in this leadership race. We're going to get what I'd say that is the sort of clean, fresh break, uh, and the sort of Boris toxified ones, and you're and it will be interesting to see how both camps do. So you've got in the clean box. Tom Tugendhat, who mm. is complete kind of outside of outside backbench, well-respected, who wants to come in and reset things and, and be a bit more sort of adult on the world stage and, and try and build consensus. You've also got in that basket Jeremy Hunt, former foreign mm-hmm. secretary. But uh, I think many people, the easy attack to make on him is, well, you were health secretary for five years and this country was woefully underprepared for a pandemic. And you've and also been the leadership candidate you've and, also lost. Been the, and lost. Exactly. Yeah. And then you've got pretty much everyone else, which is, seems to be falling into this, you know, are they going to be too tainted by association? with Boris Johnson, the people that didn't resign, um, well, why did you stick by him to the end? They might say, well, I was doing integral functions of state and there was more going on than you know. The people that did resign, people say, well, why didn't you resign sooner? You knew that this was all going on. So when it comes to who emerges as the kind of winner from these fields, it's going to be someone, I think, which in the leadership contest, which you have to keep remembering, It's not this country of 65 million. It's around 100,000 paid-up Conservative Party members. These are predominantly white, male, older people around this country who... You know, they will want to hear some of the greatest hits when it comes to Brexit. They will want to hear, Mm. you know, plucky Britain going it alone. Those Brussels bureaucrats, that sort of narrative that it was in fact Boris Johnson who's largely responsible for creating at his time in Brussels and the Telegraph in the early 90s. They will want to hear some of that. So it is going to be fascinating. Uh, And the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think, will be a big issue in this leadership race, trying to get uh, narrow down what their thoughts are on that, uh, without kind of making Dublin react and Brussels react in a huge way of, of saying that they're jeopardising the Good Friday agreement simultaneously. It's going to be an incredible balancing act to watch. Vincent McAvaney, thank you. As always,
0: that was Monocle 24's Westminster Watcher. Vincent and you are listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to a special live edition of The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now for a longer look at Boris Johnson's premiership and such legacy as it bequeaths by Lance Price, former Director of Communications at No. 10 Downing Street under Prime Minister Tony Blair. Lance currently serves as Chief of Staff to Labour Member of Parliament Kim Leadbeater. Lance, first of all, even though people living abroad have gotten to know Boris Johnson a bit by now, how would you go about explaining his appeal... To those British people, he does appeal to.
4: Boris Johnson is a very complex character and a very unconventional politician. So he has buckets of personality, there's no doubt about that. Uh, He's very entertaining and indeed he has been in his time the equivalent of a sort of almost a chat show host on British television, joking his way through discussions on matters of national and international import, I suppose, as well as a lot of very trivial matters. He's a former journalist, and in many ways he's better known for his journalism, which at times has been extremely controversial and to some people extremely offensive, than he is for his political achievements. But his Political achievements clearly are not insignificant. He was a two-term mayor of London, which for a Conservative is something of an achievement in itself because London is basically a Labour-leaning city, but he managed to win over enough people with his brand of conservatism to be mayor of London for eight years. And the same qualities that he brought to that, he then took, first of all, to the referendum on whether or not Britain should remain a member of the European Union when he, after equivocating about which side he was on, decided he was on the Leave side, led that with his characteristic style and energy and was ultimately successful. And as a result of that success was in prime position when the attempts to, let's say, find a sensible way through Britain's departure from the European Union failed to go for the all out hardcore Brexit, which he advocated, and having advocated that, became Prime Minister. Having become Prime Minister, he promised to get Brexit done because everyone was sick and tired of the whole thing, um, and won a thumping majority in December of 2019, became Prime Minister.
0: As far as you were ever able to tell, do you think he personally cared about Brexit one way or the other as a cause?
4: He decided to care about it once he made up his mind which side he supported. But I don't think that he is one of those, and there are people like this in British politics, there are quite a few, who have all through their political careers had a visceral hatred of the European Union and a belief that Britain should stand alone on the international stage. Now, Boris Johnson did have Eurosceptic, as we call it, credentials, because when he was a journalist working for right-wing newspapers and based in Brussels... He would churn out stories about bent bananas or straight bananas or something, I can't remember, sausages and whatever it was that the European Union was going to stop us eating or force us to eat in the United Kingdom. But he was doing that simply because it made for good headlines, it made for good copy, and it meant that he could make his name as a journalist. A lot of those stories were absolute nonsense, complete nonsense. And in his career as a journalist he was actually sacked by the times of london for making a story up and so one of the things that people have a problem and i'm not surprised they have a problem with him is his shall we say dubious relationship with the truth that dubious relationship was there even when he was a journalist and it was there when he became prime minister and it was ultimately what brought him down. At this point in
0: the discussion, American listeners in particular may start to hear faintly familiar themes because there, there was this idea that a few of his supporters or enablers clung to that once he ascended to the high office, he would start taking it seriously. I mean, clearly relative fripperies like Mayor of London or Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom were not sufficient to bring about any such change. But there was this idea. People were saying once he's become Prime Minister. You know, he'll calm down, he'll take the job seriously. Clearly he did not. But are you basically surprised that even once he got to where he always wanted to be, i.e. 10 Downing Street, and having some understanding of what it takes to do that job and to keep that job, that he didn't
4: really adjust his behaviour at all? I'm only surprised to the extent that you would imagine that anybody with an ounce of intelligence and competence, and he's not unintelligent and he's not wholly incompetent, becoming Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, would be so occupied by the pressures of the job and so cognizant of the requirements of the job that they would knuckle down and get on with that job. There were many signs in Boris Johnson's career before he became Prime Minister that he didn't have the character to do that, But people do change when they are confronted by a very challenging position and a job that needs to be done that requires them to up their game, if you like. The point is that Boris Johnson never did up his game. He remained a rather insubstantial man who was unable to focus on the detail and that in terms of doing the hard graft of what it takes to be Prime Minister, and it is a very tough job, he not only didn't apply himself, but he didn't actually seem to show much interest in applying himself either.
0: The scandal that does appear to have finally precipitated the rush for the exits by his own party is a wretched and tawdry and entirely avoidable one. But there have been quite a lot of those, and probably the signature scandal was what has become known as Partygate. And this is, of course, the revelations that when much of the country was locked down for the good of the public health on the instructions of Boris Johnson and under laws that his own government had passed, that Number 10 Downing Street was sort of evocative of Studio 54 in the 1970s. If you think back to your own experience of working in Downing Street, is there any imaginable way at all that, in similar circumstances, that sort of behaviour goes on in a 10 Downing Street overseen by, I mean, whoever you like, Theresa
4: May, David Cameron, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown? Uh, no, is the short answer to that question. I think it is inconceivable that the disregard for the laws of the land, never mind the propriety of office and the needs of the nation at that time, would have been ignored by any other Prime Minister that I can think of. I think that is absolutely inconceivable. And that was the period when the nation's love affair, or that section of the nation that had supported him in the past, their love affair with Boris Johnson, was broken. And yet, bizarrely and extraordinarily, the Conservative Party, which he leads or led until this week, was prepared to put up with. And, And they took all the hammering to their collective reputation as a result of what went on in Downing Street and Whitehall during the various lockdowns when laws were being Broker, They took that on the chin and were prepared to carry on with him until having lurched from crisis to crisis through all of that, they then went into yet another and found that despite having appeared to be chastened or saying he was chastened by the lessons of Partygate and so on, it was clear that he hadn't and the same disregard for the rules and belief that he could get away with things that other people couldn't get away with carried on afterwards and then we found ourselves in another sex scandal involving one of his ministers that under normal circumstances wouldn't bring a prime minister down but because of the cumulative effects of his failures up until that point to learn that any lessons from what had gone on in the past it did bring him down. If this is it
0: for Boris Johnson, where do you begin assessing his legacy? First and foremost, is there anything to be said for his period as Prime Minister?
4: Yes, there is. And I think perhaps principally it was the way in which he applied himself to the vaccine rollout and the need to get vaccines in as many people's arms as quickly as possible once those vaccines were available in response to COVID. And don't forget that COVID very nearly killed him, literally killed him. And the application that he put into that and the drive that he put behind it was extraordinary to behold and was successful. That's not to say that the government's overall handling of the Covid epidemic was successful. It wasn't. But what he did show was when he applies himself and puts all of his energies into a task, he can move mountains. And he did move mountains along with his team. So there are things that he achieved. And on a purely political level, although I fundamentally disagree with Brexit and believe it was a disastrous policy for the United Kingdom to embark upon, he said that he would get it done. And by his own lights, he did get it done in that we have left the European Union. The terms of our withdrawal are starting to unravel and people are starting to see the weaknesses in the in the arguments that he put forward and indeed in the deal that he struck. But at least there was a deal.
0: And just a final, very quick question pertaining to Boris Johnson's curiously upbeat, semi-sort of resignation speech which we heard on Thursday. Do you think there's part of him that thinks that this is sort of a temporary setback, that in some shape or form he's not done yet?
4: Well, he's not done yet in terms of the Boris Johnson story, but I think the Boris Johnson story will now go off in a very different direction. He'll probably go back into the journalism stroke commentating stroke entertainment industry and probably make a great deal of money being entertaining and making speeches around the world. If he thinks that his political career can be restored after this, then he's even more naive than I think he is, although he has shown in the past to have a remarkably much higher opinion of himself than anybody else seems to have.
0: Lance Price, thank you, as always. That was the former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street, Lance Price, and you are listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is a special live edition of The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. In one 48-hour period earlier this week, more MPs resigned from Boris Johnson's government than had previously resigned from any government of any length in British history. Not among them was Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East, though this was likely because he had no portfolio to relinquish, having long since made his disapproval of the Prime Minister abundantly clear. Tobias Elwood joins me now... On the phone, um, Tobias. First of all, was it your impression that the Chris Pincher affair was some sort of actual last straw, or was the sudden flight from Boris Johnson more to do with those recent calamitous by-election results?
3: I think it's a combination of both. I think it was that last straw, but it's been a general, I think, erosion of trust with the British people, which started way back in November with Owen. Uh, Paterson. Remember that event when uh, we tried to change the rules? And there was then a question of uh, style, of leadership because of party gates as well. What was going on in number 10? Absence of focus, absence of clarity, absence of discipline as well, and a huge promise to change, to to reform, to actually regroup. But um, none of that actually happened. And the consequence of that is that we ended up with more and more people over time choosing to actually uh, uh, no longer support the prime minister. I came out earlier. This was back in February that I came out with. But uh, more and more people chose to then join me. We then had a vote of no confidence, of course. Not enough people. Should have been enough, really, for any prime minister normally to resign when they didn't feel they had it. It then took the Chris Pinter event for people to say, right, that's it. I can't defend this anymore. I can't defend the prime minister's behavior. And it's overshadowing as well. We are firefighting every single day. Can't get the big policy announcements
0: out. It's not just these last few months or even these last few years, though, and I think this is what bewilders a lot of onlookers is that Boris Johnson has been a thoroughly known quantity in this country for the thick end of 30 years. Why did the party indulge him up to the point of uh, electing him leader and allowing him to run the country? You've
3: got to remember that we had problems uh, with getting our message across, and whilst, yes, there were character flaws in his personality, there was also a magic about him. And there was a, an ability to campaign and reach parts of Britain that we'd never touched on before. But now we're realizing that a difference between campaigning and governing. And when we saw him act in the City Hall, he ran London. He was the London mayor for some time. Uh, he had a lot of very good people around him. And that was where I think when things went wrong with the prime minister this time, is that there wasn't that team that was able to back up, to provide the substance, the detail, the strategy that you need. To make the country work.
0: Are you concerned that there might yet be more to come in terms of revelations, scandals related to Boris Johnson? Wondering, in particular, uh, given your position on the Defence Select Committee, if you have a view on his very recent admission to having met Alexander Lebedev, who is, of course, a former KGB officer without any officials present while he was Foreign Secretary?
3: I think these are now more and more irrelevant. I think now. I think that absolutely what's going to happen now is that we. We move forward. You know, whatever happens, you know, it has happened. It makes no difference anymore. He is departing. We now look to a new leader. We're going to have a leadership contest. Stalls will be set out in order to work out where we go to next. And so whatever happens, yes, it's very likely, as you, as you suggest, that there will be more there that hasn't been uncovered to date. It doesn't matter anymore because it's the direction of the country that people will focus on less about the prime minister.
0: Do you not think there is still a a Johnsonist tendency in the Conservative Party, though do such characters as attach themselves to him, like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nardine Dorries, still pull any weight whatsoever?
3: You're absolutely right to point this out, because what happened is that there was an erosion, if you like, a dissolvement, if you like, of the standards. Um, We became used to the fact that you could get away with stuff. You know, the, the high standards that we have in Britain and British politics, the mother of all parliaments, it meant that because of the way the prime minister acted, it was OK to do these things because the prime minister, the boss, didn't care too much about it. There was this culture of being able to sort of get away with it. And we absolutely need, need to revisit that because ultimately the nation look at this and they say, no, thank you. This isn't who we are. And just a step back from Britain as a whole, you know, we are seen an exemplar as to how democracy is done. In the world and when we start to lose our moral compass our guidance of where we want to go it's very easy for then russia and china to say hey look at that they're broken international law they don't care they're, you know look what happens in number 10. you complain about us it's it's in the free world as well you're just as bad so that's why i think everybody just said enough we need to regroup and that's exactly what the party is doing now
0: are you not even slightly tempted to have a bash at leading this regrouping yourself
3: well, it's very kind of you to ask. I mean, there's a lot of people ahead of me measuring the curtains, <laughs> number <laughs> 10. I would certainly like to be prime minister one day. I, I won't hide that. I'm not sure it's the market right now for somebody like myself, a, a moderate member of the Conservative Party. It's still a Brexit market, if you like. That's where you're going to get the vote, because don't forget, it isn't facing the country immediately. It's facing the party base. And you know, much as though they're important to the party, very much is the case that they are still attuned into Brexit, into that Brexit feeling. And, uh, you know, I I personally believe we need to move on from that. But I do think it'll be a Brexiteer that will end up winning this particular race.
0: But do you yourself have a preferred leader in mind, if not necessarily a who, then, or what? What kind of qualities you would like them to have?
3: Certainly the qualities must be to reach the entire country, to be able to have the vision to answer the big questions of the day, to unite the party in a post-Brexit, post-COVID environment and for us to play a role on the international stage that's absolutely critical there's an absence of leadership in europe at the moment britain can actually fill it so yes there's some important things to do we'll see what the stalls are see what the leadership actually says so we'll see in the next couple of days what the various candidates have to offer
0: tobias elwood mp thank you very much for joining us you're listening to the foreign desk on monocle 24 This is a special live edition of The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Readers of Boris Johnson's book, The Churchill Factor, and this broadcaster cannot, in all good conscience, recommend that you join them, will be aware that Johnson also perceived himself as a great man in waiting, a perhaps unlikely figure who would rise magnificently to a challenge in his nation's hour of need. As it turned out, it was another nation's hour of need which may have furnished the closest Johnson's premiership came to a redeeming quality. In one country, if not necessarily his own, he will be unequivocally missed. Well, joining me now in the studio is Alona Hlivko, a former Ukrainian local MP who now works as a political consultant here in London. Um, Alona, first of all, for you personally, are you sorry to see Boris Johnson go?
2: I think having lived in London for four years, I'm a bit more British in this sense, (laughs) and I'm not that sorry to see him go personally because it's been quite hectic for the last year, um, let's admit it. And I think as a Ukrainian, I've seen that he's definitely benefited in his role off of the war in Ukraine, as terrible as it sounds, but it's political and it's true, it's pragmatism. Uh, Ukraine was always a topic there that helped him avoid some of the domestic agenda conversations. So I think it's a very natural step for the UK society.
0: But he did get out in front of the West's response to Ukraine, and he did, as you correctly observe, identify himself very much with the cause. How important was that, especially at the early stages of the war, when he was one of the first leaders uh, to visit Ukraine, certainly the first leader of a country which is on the, the UN Security Council's permanent five? I mean, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is a big deal. How big a deal was it for Ukrainians when he turned up in Kiev to meet President Zelensky in person?
2: I think that was extremely important. And as you rightly say, he was one of the leaders who were there to galvanize the support for Ukraine when everyone was still kind of cautious to take some firm steps to help Ukraine to stand up to Russia, to name things as they were. But... Going back a little bit, you could kind of notice, as I have, that Boris Johnson is a really good crisis manager. Um, so we've seen that in dealing with COVID. Maybe not at the beginning, but eventually he got to it and he did roll out the vaccine program. Britain was one of the first countries to ease all of the restrictions in Europe. Mm. And then with the Ukraine war, he was also there on the front line, not scared to go to Kyiv for the very first time. I think he was there on the 1st of February when it was really intense um, speaking to Zelensky with the Polish president as well. Uh, So that was extremely important to set the tone in Europe. And I think also capitalizing on this theme of global Britain, and proving to the domestic audience that leaving the EU was actually the right thing because it gives the UK the mandate to go out and be one of these global actors rather than being conscripted by um, some of the EU processes and mechanisms. Um, And he was quite good at kind of that constiposition with france and germany um so i think that's been quite successful both for him and his career and that was great for ukraine too but to go back to the essence of the things if it wasn't for the uk society and and the british people who vastly support ukraine he would of course maybe not have been as explicit Mm. in his support
0: you're obviously still in touch with your own friends, family and associates in Ukraine. From your interactions with them and I guess from consuming the Ukrainian media, what's your sense of how the news of Johnson's well, presumed departure is being received in Ukraine?
2: It was quite funny because my friends who are very far from politics immediately sent me loads of messages panicking. What's happening in the UK? What are you doing over there? Why, why are you ousting Johnson? And is the greatest support for Ukraine what's going to happen to us now? And I had to take some time to have several phone calls to calm everyone down, uh, post some things on social media and explain some very basic lines to people that uh, politics in the West are... are slower, but they're also more sustainable. So if there's a policy to support Ukraine, it's not simply going to go away with one leader. And in the UK, this um, help And this uh, perception of the war in Ukraine crosses all the party lines as well. So even if it were the change, not just of the conservative uh, party leader, but also the government as a whole, if it were to go to Labour or Lib Dems or whoever, there would still be support for Ukraine. Um, But I think people in the government and some of my friends in Ukrainian parliament, they understood there is certainly concern that there might be some slowing down of some processes, Mm. just because of the chaos in the government change. So some things might fall through the cracks. But in general, no major changes are expected.
0: We have been hearing elsewhere in this program about the peculiar appeal that Boris Johnson, as a character, had uh, in certain constituencies, despite the manifold deficiencies of Boris Johnson as a politician and, arguably, a human being. Was was that part of his appeal in Ukraine? Was there something about him that people liked that led them, not just because of his support for Ukraine in its hour of need, but because they liked something about him that led to things like streets being named after him his face appearing on t-shirts songs recorded in his honor and so on
2: He's now an honorable citizen of Odessa as well for whatever reason <laughs> um I think you're quite right. It's his approachable personality and him being so open. And I think it's not just the act that he puts on. He actually loves being amongst people. I've heard even from some of his colleagues from the FCDO days that he was there um, in the canteen talking to colleagues, having lunches with them. So he genuinely likes being around people and that helped him gain Ukrainian support. When he went to visit Kiev, he took the longest walks with Zelensky uh, for almost two kilometers across the whole Khreshchatyk, which is the main mm. uh, street in Kiev, and he would stop and talk to people, they would greet him in their very poor English language, and he would make time to make sure that he's um, mentioned everyone, he's greeted everyone. So I think that definitely played a role in this absolutely approachable Western leader of a very powerful global country like UK, being there and being so supportive and open.
0: Obviously, whoever does succeed Johnson will speak probably within the first few minutes of their term about Ukraine and the United Kingdom's uh, commitments to it. What will Ukrainians like yourself and your friends and family be wanting to hear?
2: The most important thing is the ongoing and continuing support for Ukraine. All of the weapons that have been dedicated to be sent to Ukraine, that they will still be there. The one9 um billion pounds that were promised to Ukraine that they will still be there in humanitarian aid. I think it's essential to see the FCDO program on reconstruction of Ukraine going ahead as well. Um so I think just the continuation of the policies that were adopted before, and and also all the geopolitical stance of the UK in Eastern Europe in particular, with the trilateral agreement between Ukraine, the UK, and Poland, which will now might include Baltic states and maybe even Turkey. But generally, I think um, we're quite calm in in thinking that everyone, all the front runners to take the PM's position next. They're all quite hawkish Mm. um, and they're supporting and standing by Ukraine quite firmly. So I think we're calm on that front.
0: And just finally, and I only ask because a certain precedent does exist uh, in the shape of another larger-than-life political figure from another country who never really quite knew when to stop, there'd be no chance that Zelensky would offer to make him governor of Odessa or anything?
2: (laughs) Well, we've had a precedent when the the former Georgian president, who I'm sure you didn't want to mention, but I will, (laughs) uh, was the governor of Odessa and was an advisor to the president of Ukraine even. I mean, I think there were even some invites on social media yesterday that I saw Boris for governor of Odessa. (laughs) So you never know.
0: Alonia Hlivko, thank you very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. And that is it for this special live episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Our studio manager today was Nora Hule. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening.